Hello and welcome to Well It Depends, a podcast exploring the grey areas of health, fitness and life. I am your host, Charlie Beestone. I'm a qualified nutritionist and performance coach who works with everyone from elite athletes and CEOs to recreational gym goers and the general population. Well, it depends is the title of this podcast as it's probably the three words that I say most often when asked a question. Because more often than not, the answer is, well, it depends. The aim of this podcast is to try and resist the urge to oversimplify complex topics and to dive deeper to help you, the listener, improve your understanding at a less superficial level. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I hope that it challenges you to reappraise your tightly held beliefs, that you remain open to alternative perspectives and that you deepen your understanding of the subjects discussed, even if you already have some knowledge of the topic. As basketball coach John Wooden once said, it's what you learn after you know all that counts. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Right, here we go then. Um, the podcast that everyone's been waiting to hear since the last podcast that everyone wanted to hear. Uh, I'm here with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, mate. Good. Um, do you, first of all, before we get stuck into the topic we're chatting about today, do you want to give a little introduction to who you are and what you do so everyone knows? Absolutely. So I've been in the fitness industry now nearly 10 years. Started out as a personal trainer. Um, got to a point where I realised... Nutritionally, I didn't really know what I was talking about, but I was stepping into grey areas. So then spent COVID um, taking an evidence-based AFN um, kind of course, which really gave me that knowledge and clarity. And I'm a bit like you, aren't I, that from what I can gauge with content is, I think we're trying to look at the long-term change and also the nuance around a lot of these topics, which we're going to break down today. 100%, mate, yeah. Um because it's not done very well. And actually this podcast today, which I'm going to talk about, so the Tim Spector Diary of a CEO podcast, I don't think they did a great job of nuance um, at times. So I guess before we start then, what are your like main feelings about the podcast? So like having listened to it now fully, mm. how do you view, Do you ch- like, has it changed what you thought about Tim Spector? Has it changed what you thought about any of the topics? How do you feel on the whole? So he's clearly a ridiculously intelligent and qualified guy. Um, and, you know, when I people ask my opinion, I almost feel like, well, you know, I'm not as qualified as him, but mm-hmm. I feel like on the same page, um, it was, it, it, the premise was right, wasn't it? We'll discuss this. Like what he was saying around exercise tends to not work for weight loss. What he was saying around the need for, a uh, higher amount of nutrient density to facilitate weight loss. It was the the way he did it. And I, and I sensed a bit of, or, or rather a lot of cognitive dissonance in a lot of his wording, um, almost to angle people, what I felt anyway, to a product that he was trying to sell, uh, which yeah. we'll also touch on. So that was my general feeling of it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I have a lot of respect for him as a scientist and then, epidemiologist like he's done some great work like how many of us that work in nutrition haven't tried out like the 30 plants per week sort of stuff which is all from him and so I agree with most of the stuff he says like you there's some nuance that he's probably avoided or he's made a very dichotomous claim and then gone back on himself so there's something for the clip and then he's sort of justified why he said it exercise never works oh except for this this and this like there's a lot of that and that's where i said this to someone the other day i think he's clumsy really clumsy in his wording um, yeah. 
And I think a lot of the stuff he says makes sense. And even if it, people didn't know it or don't agree with it, a lot of it is right. But mm. the way he puts it across is going to confuse more people. Yeah, and I, but I also think, you know, cognitive dissonance it ha- can happen much more regularly in very educational and intelligent mm. people, can't it? I think the way he could spin it, although it was clumsy for our eyes, I think maybe for the layperson, the general public, the way he span it almost made him get away with some of the stuff that he was saying without nuance, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. And that is true of intelligent people. They often can be more dichotomous with their thinking because they have that self-assurance of actually I'm very intelligent and I'm often right. Therefore, I'm less likely sometimes to take on other views because of how well-read I am and how much I think I know. Yeah. Um, so I think there is an element of that. Overall, yeah, I'm a fan of the work that he does, maybe outside his research work, rather outside of his commercial work, should we say. Um, and I think most of the points were right. I think there was some interesting criticism from interesting people on the internet. So I know James Smith's had a lot to say about him. Um, so James Smith said he's making huge claims to try and sell his book, mm. which you could probably argue, but then James Smith has been on there twice doing the same thing. Exactly. And there's also the element of James Smith has no interest in letting this bloke sit there and be an expert because that takes away time, attention and money from him. So for someone of who's James Smith is fine PT, but he's got a bit of an ego. I think it's fair to say there's not room for other egos when James Smith's about. So it's in his interest to slag it off because there's not room. There's talent big enough for both of us sort of thing. I think there's, there's very few people who I don't like the word sell themselves, but you know, there's monetary motives, isn't there? And that can change people. And I think that's in some respects, maybe more with his Zoe app that we'll touch on. They may have angled it more towards that in terms yeah. of Tim Spencer. James Smith, I agree with you. He um he's he's a personal trainer who made it early on, isn't he? And he's mm-hmm. very uh, calorie deficit, calorie deficit simplified. Yeah. I, I appreciated more inputs from people like um is it Bio Lane? I think he he's somewhere. Oh, I've not watched his, but yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alan Aragon, people like that who yeah. sit back and and really just give a bit more context. Whereas James Smith is quite bullish, isn't he? Yeah, and like like I said, he's got no interest in both sides. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Why would he? Like it's and it's fair enough to like for us to say and just be like, well, that's I understand why you're like that because it's not in your interest too. Whereas you could argue that those other two that you mentioned have more interest in showing balance to show that they're balanced because they are marketed on. I'm a balanced view guy. James Smith isn't. But unfortunately, a lot of the time we know having very binary extremist opinions mm-hmm. itself, doesn't it? And I think yeah. James Smith relies on that. And I think maybe in some parts of this podcast that Tim slipped into that, maybe he didn't feel like he had the time to give the context, but yeah. my angle was, um, it, it, there was a thought around driving near the end towards that Zoe app. That was how I felt anyway. Yeah. And like you said, like if you're not going to be binary, you probably won't be as well known. Like yeah. everyone listening to this, I'd imagine would have heard of James Smith. How many people outside of fitness and nutrition have heard of Lane Norton or Alan Aragon? No one. Exactly. And that, that's your answer, isn't it? 100%. So in terms of the stuff that he covered, I mean, the first thing he pretty much talks about is the calorie thing which I know is probably going to take up the the most of this podcast. So I think it's really interesting because when I listened to it, I heard him say the Stephen Bartlett asked him a question and he said calorie counting doesn't work. Mm. 
But Stephen Bartlett asked the question and then he sort of slipped in, calories don't matter. And yeah. then he answered the question. And it almost, I feel like it was edited. I don't think that Tim, Pe- Tim Spectra said calories don't matter. Yeah, I feel like that will have, that's a very out there statement given what we obviously know the overwhelming point of um, weight loss is. I agree with you, maybe when they edited it, that would have got more attention. It did get more attention. Yeah. A lot of the argument was. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a lot wasn't just around the conversation around tracking. It almost merged with, well, is this even a game of calories anymore, or is this a game of nutrient quality? Yeah, and it's really interesting. So I went and listened to it again today, and Stephen Bartlett's question is, "What do you think about weight loss and being healthy? Is just about having a calorie deficit?" That's essentially three questions. Like that's not one question, and he's got to answer all of that. Plus, he'd already asked him a question about calorie counting. And then people have taken his answer to what is four questions and so you don't think calories matter. And I'm not sure, based on that answer, that that's the case. Yeah, we, we don't know, like I say, with the editing, what was said and what wasn't. I guess it's the annoying thing. And I guess it's where Tim is at now, does that bother him either way? He's got the exposure. You know, it, within reason, I find that any exposure is often good exposure and that will drive people more to, you know, Steve's... Uh, podcast to tim's books there we are so everyone's a winner this is quite ironic wasn't it i found out later that um that steve has that uh investment in huel doesn't he oh yeah yeah we'll touch on i'm sure that that i I cringed a bit when i heard that part when that advert came on mate i died a little bit i'm not gonna lie oh we'll come (laughs) on to that um so yeah and i don't think that he doesn't think calories matter i think he thinks nutrient quality matters more and what frustrated me is he sort of said that focus on calories means that we don't focus on nutrient quality. And I don't think that is the case. Uh, or at least it doesn't have to be the case, but he more, almost said it, made it sound like it was one or the other. And it's obviously not. I think people consume in too closely on yeah. either of those, can't they? We have a, a people who will think, well, if I eat healthily, how would you find that? That's obviously a gray area in itself. Mm. I will automatically lose weight. And don't get me wrong for a lot of, people because of the society nature of certain nutrients like protein fiber that does happen but you know we've all been around people who are i remember years ago being out with my dad's mates and one of them was trying to lose weight and he was like i've ordered this burger but i'm having a salad because i'm losing weight and Mm. that optimizes that's what i thought because he's adding calories in there however small they are so you're absolutely right mate we we don't want to zoom in too close on either it has to be kind of symbiotic relationship with both doesn't it Mm mm-hmm 100%. And there was a couple of other times where he sort of contradicts himself a little bit because he says part of his calorie spiel is we focus too much on calories and macros, like fat, protein, carbs, and that's an old way of thinking, 100 years old, as if that makes it wrong immediately. And then, But then later on, he goes on to speak about fat and sugar spikes and peaks Mm -hmm. and things like that. And you think, well, actually, those can't happen without you eating fat and carbohydrates. So you can't try and exclude them from the conversation and bring them back in when you're touching on the Zoe individualization stuff. And then I think he was cherry picking smartly different things. And, and, you know, I was interested, what caught my attention was the statement he made around, you know, no long-term studies approve calorie counting works. Right. But if we take that, that metric, neither have any named diets, neither have any diets. We, you know, we know that, or we know as personally, but also the studies say that, true long-term change is where someone starts to change their values and identity and just wants to live this way. So he he almost put that on a pedestal, like it's the calories that have been, calorie tracking has been looked at, it doesn't work. 
any sort of diet in the long term, six months plus, tends to fail, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, 100%. And a few things like when he says, oh, it doesn't work in the long term or there's no study showing it in the long term. I mean, one is research is expensive. Doing a study to get people to track their calories all the time for months and months and years would be fucking expensive. And who would want to do it? Like, exactly. You get no you get no sign-ups, but you get a lot of dropouts if you did. 100%. But you'd get that with any diet, wouldn't you? I think. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think we know I came across some short-term studies around um, tracking and monitoring your calorie intake that showed good results in the short term. And, and I think this is really the angle that I come at. I would never assume that everyone needs to track calories. I think there's a group of people who may need it under the right premise and context as kind of a temporary set of stabilizers to change the habits. And then they stop using that app and hopefully they carry on in a kind of automatic style. But yeah, I think the long term, you ain't not, you're not going to get people for 12 plus months every day tracking calories, but you're not going to get everyone going low carb every day for 12 no. months or yeah. world or anything like that are you no and he's like well it doesn't there's no long-term study showing it works but people should be doing it short term and then coming away from it like you said like I, you don't want people trying to lose weight for the whole year mm. losing weight generally for a lot of people not for everyone it's probably going to be a short-term thing regardless so actually the fact that it works in the short term and then they can like you said sort of migrate to some sort of plan or structure that's less rigid Brilliant. So actually, you've not said that tracking calories doesn't work. You've just said it won't work if you try and do it all the time. And it's, again, a very broad stroke. He said, we haven't got any evidence. It doesn't. Therefore, it won't. Like, the absence of evidence doesn't mean that that's a fact that it'll never work. It just means we haven't got that evidence. And, and that was the way he was angling it, wasn't it? Yeah. I think I also thought, knowing about his app, and um, I don't know how much you've looked since his OE app, but it's, this is how I gauge it, that when someone starts up now... They wear a glucose monitor for two weeks on their arm. I think there's a certain muffin they eat that yep. checks. Is it how how they absorb fat or, or gut? Are they, they take a stool sample for gut health as well? Yeah, and then it's because it's... Uh, I read about this in one of his books. I started one of his books. It's got food coming in. So how quickly that comes through is like a marker of digestive health, I think. Well, I think let's look at that. Like who is going to follow that program for yep. 12 months? And, and And, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of the podcast here, but... We know that how an individual's body utilizes glucose or fats doesn't actually interact with overall weight loss, does it? No. So that's the way he was angling that as well. Yeah. And also it's implying that food is the only thing that has an impact on blood sugar. Well, actually, we know that muscle mass, for example, has a huge impact on how well we regulate our blood glucose. So you can have two people given the same in their same every way apart from one's got more muscle mass and they will probably handle blood glucose better. 100%, I think. But there's other things as well. There's things like stress, yeah. lack of sleep, all yeah. sorts of factors. And, and yeah, I think it for me, it was adding even more complication onto things that are never going to change. And I think when we discuss, we're on a similar page, like how to get people having better habits nutritionally, how to just lead this consistent life. Nothing will change. Human evolution is a pretty slow thing, but people yeah. are constantly trying to re-spin it for financial reasons. And I think that's the way he's gone. And I, you know, I almost spat my coffee out when I heard that his app was valued recently, I think $200 million. Yeah. You know, that's a pretty big incentive just to cherry pick your wording a bit more, isn't it? If you were to be cynical and said, find me someone that if they were offered £200 million or a significant chunk of that wouldn't change what they were saying. I'm not saying they'd lie, but would they dress up what they say 
to have a, a big slice of that, they probably would, wouldn't they? It's, it's difficult not to, mate. And I know yeah. me and you sit here um, with, with you know a successful business, but clearly nowhere near on that level. Speak yourself, you know? mate. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? But for me, and to be honest, mate, I get it. Like, if, if that happened to me, could could I categorically say that I wouldn't spin it? I'd like to think yeah. my would say no, but when someone's got a fishing rope with $200 million hanging at the end of it, yeah, I couldn't promise that in five years' time. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it's like any lottery win, isn't it? People are like, "Well, I wouldn't do that." No, you'd like to think you wouldn't do that. You've got no idea until it happens. Exactly. And then you, well, actually, maybe I would like to do that now. No, hundred percent. Um, yeah. So with the calorie stuff, like obviously the calorie counter thing, we're not huge fans of. I tell you what really upset me more than his calorie counting thing is his explanation of metabolism. Every time he mentioned metabolism, he said something slightly different and it was always wrong. Um, so very strict calorie count. If you restrict yourself for a few weeks, you will lose weight. So obviously it's implied that calories do matter. Yeah. If you're successful, your body's evolutionary mechanisms will make you hungrier and hungrier. And that's regardless. So there's no individualization there. You will get hungrier. No nuance. And that was a problem, wasn't it? Because we know yeah. that that isn't the case for everyone. Mm-hmm. Your body goes into shutdown mode and your body isn't expending calories in the same way. Well, that's just bollocks. Like you can be the best scientist in the world. That's shite. What, that. what the fuck shutdown mode? But he knows better, doesn't he? That's yeah. the thing. And it it might be that it's a case of he's tried to simplify his language so much that it's now wrong, which is really common with scientific communication. Like we try and be so simple that everyone can understand that actually we've moved away from what the truth is and we've made yeah. up something that isn't true. Absolutely. So it might be that. But he might be bullshitting. Yeah, I, th- I think you're pretty in the middle of both of those. Yeah. And then another thing that upsets me is that he trots out the sort of more than 95% of people will gain the weight back or more, which is a really old stat, which isn't really, it's not steeped in really good evidence. And also like that's any diet. So whether it's supported or unsupported, whatever type of diet, like, I just don't think we can definitely say 95% of diets fail and just group all diets together, like you said earlier, and they're all the same thing and they all fail. It's bollocks. I think, you know, you can't study that, firstly. It's it's a nice clicky stat that says only 5% succeed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we know that the environment we live in, because we respond to our environment, it's it's a difficult place to be at for a whole host of reasons. We're getting attacked on all angles to not, you know, gain weight, or regain weight, you know, mm-hmm. household foods, sedentary lifestyle, stress, marketing, food environment, the way we socialize a culture. Like you just said, any diet, regardless, there's a high chance people will return back to their weight. The people who succeed, and I always remind people of this, is the people who change their values and want to become that healthy, more balanced person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've got to have a reason for doing it to, like you said, get past all of those barriers, which there are yeah. now. There's more barriers than there's ever been. And there's also arguably more drive to try and be leaner than ever because of social media, media pressures on us. So those two things conflict to make it really difficult. So people have to have a pretty strong why for, I want to lose weight for it to stick. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. No, 100%. But I think sadly, people look at the, like you said, the pressure side and, and want that very direct result. And that's where the diet comes in. Do you know what I mean? Most people come to me and you may find this, uh, the first period of time is often spent trying to rethink why are they doing this, yeah. trying to get them out of that. I want to look like this now. Yeah. Let's try and change your identity and change your the habits to get there. Maybe as a secondary byproduct in the long yeah. term. hundred um, percent. There was 
a really interesting thing I thought was that he said calorie counting reduced 10% of your calories and you'll lose weight. He said it's virtually impossible because restaurants aren't accurate, labels aren't accurate on food products, their averages, etc., which is all true. But then he spends the rest of the podcast telling us to avoid those foods and eat natural, unprocessed foods, which actually, if you do that and you track them in a calorie thing, any sort of tracker, you'll have pretty good estimates, actually, because they're not processed foods. Absolutely. Would you not argue, though, that even growing conditions, regardless of how processed, impacts actually the, the calorie availability i mean there's complexity there that you could go around individual gut health and we know has an impact mm. we know that the calories you expend day to day will never be the same but because there's variance everywhere that's my argument if i do temporarily have a client observing their calories i'm saying this is why you don't need to be obsessive we want to get you in the right direction we want to be accurate enough for purpose mm. uh, but yeah absolutely i don't think that was a, an argument at all really it depends on your margin for error, doesn't it? Like, I think particularly if you track unprocessed whole foods, for want of a better phrase, the variance is small enough that it actually makes it a worthwhile process. I'd argue it's the same for restaurant food and like packaged foods as well, mm-hmm. processed foods. But I think definitely for those sorts of foods, there's, the variance is small enough that in the right for the right people at the right time for the right period of time, it makes sense. Absolutely, hundred percent. I think what what temporary temporarily tracking calories can do for some people it allows them to take the fundamental principles around weight loss around health and general in terms of you know adequate fiber adequate protein and put it into their life in a way that you know they their preferred food um preferences their preferred lifestyle when they want to eat so that is the value of that and that's why for some people it can serve because it's not imposing unnecessary barriers like you know, him with his um, app saying you'd be better off having a banana instead of an apple and stuff like that. Like for him to talk about diets and then end up going on one of his own diet conversations was madness to me. Yeah, no, 100%. And actually, like, we always, I seem, I feel like we always talk about the barriers to tracking and why people should do it, even if they, it's hard for them and they don't necessarily want to. People don't realise there are a lot of people that like tracking and want it and not because of any disordered reason, just because they're, for example, like data-driven people. I work with like a guy who's like CEO of multiple companies and he just likes data because he's a finance background, loves numbers and he actually likes tracking stuff and seeing actually for that, I could have had that might not be accurate, but at least I'm making better choices because of these numbers. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, again, the whole binary uh, world we live in, a lot of people like tracking is obsessive, right? But I've had an incident or an, an example of a client who had disordered eating and she was underweight. And she she hadn't tracked, but she she wanted to see alongside the science, the, the knowledge. She wanted to be able to have tangibility on what she was doing. So I dabbled with her with that. I said, "Look, this is why I'm doing it." And we we did that for three months, and she regained the weight with better kind of emotional relationship with herself because she could see it. It wasn't forever, and we weaned her off that. And that was actually a facilitating tool yeah. for something reversing obsession when a lot of people think tracking is automatically obsessive it's yeah. really individual conversation isn't it yeah and that's a great example of how tracking calories is one tool but it doesn't have to be used in isolation if you use it alongside mind fleeting if you use it alongside like emotional regulation stuff like it's part of an overall process it's not we track calories or we do something else like you can yeah. use it with other things absolutely and i think this is where you standard i use the term um gym bro online coach where you know 
there is no depth behind these are your calories, these are your macros, go track. You know, I, I'm like you and I've been coached this way. It's like, well, what are your barriers? You yeah. know, what, what's your relationship with food? Um, what are your values in life? You know, trying to create a routine in someone's life so that they can have general eating points most of the time. They know how to generally build a good meal. They also know that they can have that flexible approach of their chocolate of eating out, of drinking. Yeah. Um, it, it, you're absolutely right. It is one part of a broader uh, thing where you're bringing in a lot of different things together, aren't you? Yeah, and I think you'll see, I've seen this with other coaches that have that sort of, these your numbers, go and do it approach, is that if people don't hit the numbers, if they go past them, their response is to drop their calories down because you didn't manage it this week, rather than let's actually do some coaching and look at why did you go over your calories for this week? What happened? Like you said, what are the, what were the other factors? It's just, you went over this week, we'll go down this week. So if you went over your calories last week, surely this week you'll be able to eat less calories. And apparently that makes sense to people. It's it's madness, but it's like you said, it's one tool that we use alongside other things at the right time for the right people to get the outcome. They want. I, I would say I'd add to that, that I'm a big believer that, there's obviously a lot of pitfalls with apps. So mm-hmm. my fitness palace is a long serving one. Um, if I do temporarily get a client track and I now generally use NutriTech, I'm sure you've heard of that app. Um, for that a bit more, but they all, without the use of someone like me and you alongside them, can drive people to be obsessive. You yeah. know, the algorithms aren't that great. We know that they pump out very unnecessary specific numbers. So I'm big on this. I personally don't recommend most people track without the full picture of the mm. pros and cons of that tool and of why we're using it as, as that facilitating tool yeah 100 percent because it's like it's an app that's there to make money for someone mm. they need you to be on it more using it more so mm. cynically again they're going to design it in a way and they'll, they'll be paying people don't understand this they'll be paying hundreds of thousands to behavioral scientists say how can we get this person to spend more time do more clicks more shares which is social media isn't it but these apps do the same thing. So actually, if we just let people run off with them on their own, that's when there can be some issues rather than this is why we're using it. This is when these will be our criteria to stop using it potentially. And also the deep context of, yeah. the, of how to actually use it in a sustainable yeah. way. 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did he say? So one thing that frustrated me was when he talked about, so moving away from calorie counting to calories, and like food quality, he said, we assume that all calories are, are the same, but they aren't the same. Not all calories are like for like. And then he used this example where he said, we've got this study where people were given identical meals in terms of calories and macros in a semi-enclosed prison. And they were given homemade versus ultra-processed food. And the ultra-processed group over, or when they had the ultra-processed food, they overate by 200 calories every day because they went back to the buffet. Yeah, yeah. These studies on sort of appetite and energy intake are useful. There's no getting past that. They teach us something. Mm. However, and one of the difficulties of testing food intake and appetite in the lab is that it's in a lab. So like the question that I will pose to people about this sort of study is, do you personally live in a semi-enclosed prison and are you brought your food with no say in it and you just eat and you brought homemade meals or processed food? No, you don't. You actually live in the real world and you control your food and take control of what you choose. So these are informative studies, but alone are not evidence that calories matter loads because 
they, they back up what we know that yeah. for most people, if if you have again, it's not a black and white conversation, it's a big gray area of what we define as processed, but okay, high processed foods more regularly, you we know they're often of low volume, um, they're low in lower in protein, lower in fiber, and, and you more than likely will eat more than if you were having a massive chicken salad with brown rice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're not you're not going to be in that synthetic environment that that study was used. And it doesn't tell as much, does it really? No, 100% that. Um, and it, it ignores loads of other contexts. So I think a really good example that I use with clients quite a lot is ultra processed food, for example. Let's think of like a dessert that's a high carb, high fat combination, like a cheesecake, for example. And they will say, well, actually, I eat loads more with cheesecake. I, It's a problem food. I can't control it. If you'll put a cheesecake is put in front of you at a restaurant after you order it. Do you ever order like six or seven pieces? You order one and then you go home because the context and the environment are dictated to you. Mm -hmm. It's pre-portioned, isn't it? Exactly. So again, we've, we've not even had to try that hard to add some nuance to that conversation to, and it doesn't debunk the results of that study. It doesn't Mm. like invalidate them. But you've got to provide some context to those conversations to say, well, actually, ultra-processed food versus like homemade food, that's not the only conversation to have. No, it's a massive oversimplification. And like you say, using that analogy of a restaurant, how often, how many times a week do we eat at a restaurant? How many yeah. times when we go to a restaurant do we have a buffet? I think yeah. I've had a buffet uh, kind of meal set in restaurant once in the last five years, mate. So you're right, but it's it's very quick. It gets his point across and it's cherry pits, isn't it? it mm-hmm. You could spend a whole podcast talking about that thing, but that wouldn't be what the podcast host wants. That wouldn't be what get him. So, and this is the world we live in that, and why we constantly remind people that you have to be so cautious with, you know, where you get your knowledge from and, and not just take it with a pinch of salt, but with a big lump of rock salt, <laughs> if anything. hundred mm-hmm. percent. And, he talks about the muffins thing, like one in four people have a high sugar rise and then a dip three hours later and that that blows calories versus calories in versus calories out, out of the water, which it doesn't because it doesn't talk about weight loss then. He's shifted. There's a bit of a straw man argument where he shifts from weight loss to energy levels to try and prove his point when he was talking about weight loss before. Now he's mm. talking about energy and saying, well, obviously this proves that they're not all the same. Mm. Yeah, but it doesn't prove that for weight loss. 100%. I think also within that straw man argument... He was he clean said at one point that basically we know that all these people have tried calories. They really, you know, no one is just saying you just need to eat less. You yeah, know, that, we know that doesn't work. But fundamentally, the principle of weight loss, if someone needs and wants that, is eating less. Plus, what what he was also talking about uh, the nutrient density for health and for the filling nature of it, of course. Mm. Yeah, we won't. I was going to, but we won't talk about his comments on the food industry and the sort of conspiracy theories, which, to be fair, is an attractive sort of hypothesis as to why there is a big focus on calories and macros from a food company perspective. But then to say, oh, the government are in on it and this it's it gets a little bit much for me then. Yeah, it's a bit murky, that. Yeah. Um, and I always say that like, public health nutrition is so complex because he's had a whole podcast talking about how we're all individuals and then occasionally we'll go back and say well the public health recommendations are wrong and i just think it's trying to do public health recommendations for nutrition is a real thankless task it's ruthless because you're trying to create an average for yeah everyone who is so individual in in an unimaginable amount of ways 
exactly. Um, he again he talks about metabolism and says so he talks about energy balance and says you can't men- measure energy in very well, which is fair. Like you can't be that accurate outside of a lab. Mm-hmm. And he says you can't measure energy out, which isn't strictly tr- true. Like you can't outside of a lab again. It's really difficult. Mm-hmm. We can put people in like a metabolic ward and actually measure mm-hmm. them for the day. Mm-hmm. Costs so much money. Mm-hmm. Um, then he goes on to say he mentions a sort of two thousand five hundred calories average. Mm-hmm. says well that's crap and then says um anyway when we measured my metabolism it was lower than that and i was like well a minute ago you said we can't measure it and now you're saying it's lower than the average yeah, like, he's, it. he's gone back on himself again yeah um and energy expenditure is really hard to measure to the point of unless i'm working with an athlete with high energy expenditure i won't try and calculate it because we we've got decent averages to go off absolutely or you can that's an athlete setting i usually say if someone is monitoring um their weight on a weight loss journey you can gauge it off the scales and look at trends anyway and make changes accordingly can't you yeah and like we've got like proxy measures like step counts and things like that to say i was less active this week than last week weight's not changed like all these factors play into it so again it was that was the most disappointing thing where i thought these are one of the few times where you've not just cherry picked but you're wrong is the metabolism energy expenditure stuff which i just don't think he did a very good job with um and he said like evolutionary mechanisms are that once we exercise we start feeling hungry and we'll come on to the exercise but that's why it doesn't work but there's a couple of reasons why that's not true one is that we know that energy in versus energy out probably isn't regulated hour by hour day by day it's probably more likely week by week so this like evolutionary once i've done this my body immediately responds doesn't happen the other is that actually when we meet a certain intensity point with exercise we actually see a suppression of appetite afterwards so something called exercise induced anorexia which is just the loss of appetite after exercise so actually that's completely negated what you just said about energy expenditure i think it's a classic conversation again isn't it that it depends like some people yeah. do and you're right some some people depend on the exercise type but even within there i would argue there's still levels of individuality but i also think it's a secondary conversation with that that often people over predict how many calories they burn in exercise mm. and mentally justify that yeah. to to then eat more and, and a classic example mate um is my my old man he used to go out every saturday for a few drinks and his justification for a takeaway after was he was walking about two miles trip. <laughs> to get to the pub and that was his idea he generally yeah. thought would justify and it was only when they broke down dad you probably burn an extra 300 calories that there and back max yeah. probably not going to justify your 2500 calorie pizza is it so no. there's a side conversation outside of just literally our, our hunger hormone regulation but also our subjective idea of how many calories we've burned i think that's it more often is it is just a conscious sort of regulation of calories but like i've burnt probably burnt well i don't know thousand there so i'll have that back and mm. I think that happens more often than this physiological adaptation that he's talking about that happens. Um, I guess if we talk about the exercise thing while we're on the topic, exercise doesn't work for weight loss. I mean, if we look at the evidence, the evidence suggests that exercise doesn't help people lose weight on its own. Mm-hmm. For, for most people in the general population, absolutely. Because most people yeah. will only exercise, what, two to four times a week at the general mm-hmm. level. And we know that, Again, loads of variables, and an hour exercise can burn what two to six hundred calories, maybe on average. Obviously, there's yeah. lots of different types, and and when we appreciate and the entirety of how we burn energy for most people, it is the the fourth of the four, and and even their day to day movements accommodate more, don't they? So, 
again, the premise of that was right, but it, it had no nuance. You say that to someone who has signed up for the London Marathon and starts training for a marathon. That volume, that question of volume of, of formal exercise could definitely elicit uh, mm. weight loss within itself outside of dietary situations. But yeah, he was right in the sense for the general population, people don't lose any meaningful weight or keep it off just through exercise. You have yeah. to have the dietary intervention. Yeah, like you said, on average for the general population. Um, I think that's part of this is the fact that he's got an epidemiologist epidemiologist on the podcast who is looking at big data sets of thousands of people and saying on average this happens mm. but then he sort of is essentially and i think he almost says this is that if you exercise you won't lose weight because your body will and again that's not true of everyone i can think of times in my life where i've changed nothing but exercise consciously and i've lost weight as a result not intentionally but it just happens having worked with a lot of athletes like they don't change their eating behavior very often but there'll be stages throughout their uh, career so maybe going from like school level to college university like youth age group level the only thing that will change they're still at home is their energy expenditure and they'll lose weight absolutely 100 percent. i think if he'd have worded it on average mm. he was just so like binary again once he bang that's done um, and i think look I, I i agreed with the premise of that conversation because so many people come to me and think the exercise is to burn calories mm. um and you know regardless of that generally not being true we're trying to angle exercise for the positive adaptations to muscle mass to the cardiovascular system um and so that was important because you know you move people away from seeing exercise this punishing thing where they're looking at their really inaccurate frigging calorie watch thing i've burned 500 now i can go out for some prosecco with the girls or something like that to i am doing this because i know i live in a way that probably isn't great for my muscle mass and for my cardiovascular health and general well-being, and this is an investment like when I clean my teeth so that they don't fall out, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think it. I wonder will it put people off doing exercise? Because to be fair to him, he did justify like saying it's good for this, this, and this. Like definitely still do it, but it's not going to make you lose weight. And I can imagine there'll be some people listening to it going, well, that was the only reason I was going to bother exercising in the first place. So I won't try now. And that's a shame, is it? That highlights yeah. where the general public, not from their own being, but from the environment, the pressure environment they live in, find themselves that they are viewing these things directly for weight loss. It's our job, yeah. isn't it? I guess as coaches to angle it in a more appropriate way so they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's on him because like, if you're to say something and try and make it so that, no one can interpret it in a negative way. You won't say anything. Mm. Like with social media, like the advice that we give out, it's not going to work for everyone. It's not suitable for everyone. And that's okay. Like it's okay to put out information that you can't can't fit everyone because it's impossible to do. And if you do, you actually don't help anyone. Yeah. And I think, you know, I fight this battle with my own content. At the end of the day, where the more more content that is given to us on social media, the less time we'll give it. We want quick, simple answers now. But unfortunately, when you're talking around nutrition, the human body exercise, there is a lot of context needed in everything. But most people don't want to deal with yeah. that context, and and that's that's the bat the the battle we we all face. Some of us are better than others, but we know that the simplistic, direct approach tends to get more attention, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, hundred percent. Um. He speaks about intermittent fasting, to be fair, and he does a good job of explaining different types of fasting, like intermittent fasting is pretty broad. And then he goes on to 
10-hour window of eating and says plenty of studies that show it helps with rats and mice, their metabolism and energy management, weight loss, inflammation levels, energy and mood are improved Mm -hmm. and there's less hunger. So there was a bit about rats and mice, a bit about people. Mm -hmm. Again, what do you mean by metabolism and energy management, particularly in rodents? How do you assess their energy? And how do you compare a rodent to a human in the sense of our the way we look at our eating behaviors our our food environment you know it's, it's a whole different conversation isn't it yeah and then he he talks about some things which i'm not a huge fan of so he says the gut wall isn't leaky which i'm not is a a big that term isn't actually bound in any literature is it a ge- leaky gut isn't yeah. it? Really. i get what put across but it literally isn't an actual statement is it uh, and what he's saying about sort of the gut is cleaned up and stuff is essentially autophagy which happens anyway so we don't need to fast for that to happen we know that exercise has a positive effect on that so whether it sort of can improve it i don't think the data is there necessarily i think it's showing that it could particularly in animal models but to mm-hmm. say oh this is definitely what fasting does for you um it was funny because he sort of finished by saying like i've tried it for the last two or three years and I'm absolutely sure that it does work if, and then goes, but if it's right for you and like, well, which is it then you're absolutely sure it works or it works for you sometimes. Yeah. He's gone back on himself straight away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I was glad that he didn't talk too long about fasting because that's a kind of worms in itself. Yeah. That... Well, I think when you think why most people would consider fasting, it would run along the lines of weight loss, wouldn't it? Whether yeah. he directly explicitly mentioned weight loss or not, most people are listening sadly to understand weight loss and you know fasting is just a tool that shortens a window of eating which can make eating less more likely but again it's that classic case of adherence will the person who fasts fasts consistently for years and end probably not yeah and i'll say to people is that so they'll say well actually i really struggle with breakfast or with like food in the evening would fasting help me with this and i'll say maybe but if you're not fixing the problems that are causing you to do those things in the first place, mm-hmm. so like if you're eating because you're knackered and stressed and feel shit in the evening in front of the TV and you eat a thousand calories, not eating after a certain time will help that, but it hasn't solved how you use food to cope with your emotions. So actually it might be, like you said, it'll be a short term fix, but long term you'll end up, that will manifest in some other way with food at some other time of the day. Absolutely. I think it, that's a case of looking at the indirect Factors that drive potentially an overconsumption of calories, like you said. And again, the world we live in, uh, we know that a lot of people are overstressed, underslept, um, etc. So, yeah, that's a really important part of of coaching. It's not the direct influence, but stepping back and what is causing this. And that, when you deal with the root causes, that's where you get the longevity of someone's eating behaviors. Yeah, he talked about vitamins a bit. Um vitamins don't work obviously he makes this big bold statement and then goes back on himself unless you've got a weird disease or a deficiency now obviously quite a few people have various deficiencies and you've immediately said well vitamins do work for them then but that's not gonna sell so i'll, I'll make sure i make the big claim first and then i'll go back myself and justify it afterwards and rationalize it and i just I think, think there's that many different points around there isn't there like, i think well, what population are we talking about? Yeah. Are we talking what about the Western world? world? Yeah, because, you know, that's a quite a privileged statement, I think. I suppose when you've got a $200 million uh, dollar, dollar um, yeah. app, you can make sure you get all the best food and may not need vitamins. Yeah. But, you know, 
do you live north of the hemisphere? You may need a supplementation of vitamin D. You know, I've got colitis. I know people who've got another IBD disease, Crohn's, they might need supplementation. There's so much context. And I get he wants to get his point around, but he could have been a bit more nuanced with that. Well, you'd fit in the weird disease category. Just yeah. <laughs> Even the word of that, you know, I was thumbs it's up. Like, great, is it? Cheers, yeah, Tim. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I generally agree. Like people put multivitamins as some sort of security when actually if you just eat some fruit and veg, like people take vitamin C, like high dose vitamin C because they've had a bad day or they feel a bit tired as if that's going to fix things. Like there is a, a chronic misuse of supplementation, I think. And I think that's fair to say, but to just go completely the other end of the pool and say they don't work. It's yeah, just... we know we know they're marketed and we know a lot of people see them as like, you know, a super pill that will solve yeah. all their issues. But I also have had people in the past come to me like, we know that a lot of people um, in the world we live in don't eat enough nutrient-dense food. In the short term, we're not saying it's a magic pill, but maybe getting someone on a multivitamin until they start to uh, get more nutrient density in, that can be a facilitating temporary factor as well. Yeah. So you're saying, like, oh, unless he said, unless your diet quality is awful, you don't need them. Well, the reality is a lot of people's diet is awful quality and it will stay that way no matter how much you'd love it to be better and how much you'd love them to use your app. Would you rather they got those vitamins and minerals from somewhere or not had them and you just felt high and mighty about diet? Mm, absolutely. I think there's a, there's a conversation around the availability in foods of certain vitamins. For me, do do we need to supplement vitamin C? Most of us not because it's so available yeah. in so many um, in so many veg. Something like vitamin D, like we touched on, you know, this time of year when we synthesize however much, you know, well over ninety percent, I think, from the sun, we can't get it generally from October to March. Well, then there's a valid response. So yeah. it's making sure the population know what is easier to get hold of and where to get it from, and, and if they're still struggling, then use that as a as a kind of top up i guess because i've read the start of his book and he does talk about how the food sources for vitamin d and i I just think oh, that's all well and good but you're now ignoring the evidence that we probably need to supplement mm. just to back up your claim that vitamins don't work and keep that as strong as possible mm. and i just that's a shame actually yeah no absolutely but i mean that then disguised nicely into the, the nice fuel break doesn't it really? oh yeah so quick one from Fuel. Health has become a huge priority in my life in, t- in the last two or three years. And I just think that's, you just didn't come across very well in that because you sounded like you knew absolutely nothing about health. If that's really been the case, you'd know more about some of these topics that you spoke about. Absolutely. Like, And you'd be using Fuel probably as a last resort rather than a, a foundation for your healthy behaviours. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah, I, I don't think Stephen Bartlett came across particularly well in the whole no. thing. I think he was obviously quite agreeable, wasn't he? And he yeah. was making claims that I think he was, you know, speaking of supplementation, he was going to banish whatever it was. He was taking calcium, et cetera. Um, yeah, he's going to say those things, isn't he? Is he going to yeah. go away for that and really impose any of that into his life? Absolutely not. He's got what he wanted from that podcast. Tim's got what he's want. Away they go. The storm has been created. We'll all debate it uh, in, in, in detail, won't we? Well, we are doing, yeah. Um... yeah exactly. <laughs> They spoke about sugar because uh, Stephen went completely keto and lost mm-hmm. the stone. Um, his gut issues went. And to be fair, Tim did like come out with a decent rebuttal where he said, "You have you just improved your diet quality? Like mm-hmm. People don't realise they don't cut out food. They replace foods they were eating with something else. What mm-hmm. did you replace it with? 
Mm-hmm. I think that's often a bit, particularly with like Keita, for example, where it's missed. Like you've you've got rid of some stuff, but what have you put in instead? Yeah, it's a belief, isn't it, that yeah. that thing directly led to that outcome. I suppose that runs along the same line of what people get caught in with the circle of diets. Person goes low carb, loses weight. It was directly because I reduced the carbs. No, you reduced the energy intake. That runs along the same line, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that was funny was he said, I was loads healthier on keto. And then a bit later on, he says, I was Googling every fruit and veg to make sure it was keto safe. And nothing says unhealthy relationship with food, like having to Google fruit and veg to see whether you can eat them. Absolutely. I mean, then it's how do we define health? Well, is it's it... not just physical health, is it? Exactly. Yeah. But I think there's also a massive argument, you, as you know, as well as I do, that, you know, carbohydrates are pretty essential for your uh, brain and for your muscles and for your fibre, to be fair. So um, I think, yeah, and clearly he's not sustained it, has he? So he kind of okay. ruins his whole argument. Like most people who do these diets, it was great in that moment, but you're back to, to eating how you were. Yeah. And he probably wasn't keto to start with. He just cut out the majority of his carbohydrate. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Gluten intolerance, they touch on, which I actually agreed with him. I don't think most people are gluten intolerant. Yeah, I think I agree with that. there is sort of generalized IBS for a variety of different factors. Um, it was a shame that he had to talk about why it was because of glucose spikes to again sell the fact that we all need to monitor glucose rather than because stress, dehydration, lack of sleep, poor mm-hmm. food choices, alcohol, like all the things we know can cause IBS. Mm-hmm. If, but, you, if someone said to you, I've got IBS, what would, would where would glucose peaks or spikes come in your answer you deal with the main pillars of health wouldn't you You, you, let's say someone has come to me and they've been to the doctor and they have no structural issues with their digestive system their bloods are fine to me i don't pretend to know exactly what's going on but you look at what like you just said where's your sleep where's your stress where's your fiber intake oh you're smashing five cans of diet coke a day probably not going to help you know that that's the line where that would come in i don't think it would unless someone was literally snorting five kilograms of sugar a day then it might be well it's probably not ideal (laughs) and to go back to like your personal story with your dad like my brother was adamant that he was lactose intolerant and i tried to explain to him maybe it was because he was having dinner at nine o'clock and dinner was often a whole supermarket pizza and four cans of stella i I would argue maybe james that it wasn't it wasn't the uh the lactose it was maybe some other lifestyle factors potentially And, and you're absolutely right i think what we are exposed to um online and culture we can jump to a conclusion and miss a whole host of those factors and speaking about my old man he has had a lot of investigation into his digestive system because he's been having issues but you know he goes out and drinks eight pints on a saturday yeah he has a an overestimation like a lot of us do of how well he actually eats and how well he sleeps but he, and actually it's ironic because he's had um, colonoscopies, he's had cancer on his throat, he's had blood. They keep, the doctors keep going, there's nothing, we can't find anything wrong with you. But he's like, no, I want to know. And it's that, <laughs> but he won't almost look, and I hope he's not listening to this, but he won't look particularly at his food that well or his sleep that well. And I've found that a lot in, in the general public because it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? They want the easier, the quicker kind of thing to do. I'll just yeah. move in. But then it, misses all the more difficult stuff that would probably help if you looked at it. Yeah, but I don't want to look at it, so I'm not going to, I'm going to look for something structural or make them keep looking for it. I, I've seen that a lot as well, to be fair. Um, where else should we go? He said, the research on sugary drinks, um, he did say it was difficult to know what the effects of sugary drinks are because they're not studied. And there is an element of, 
funding's difficult because there's no interest from the beverage mm. company. So if you look at like isotonic drinks like Lucasaid Sport, they're heavily researched in sport because it's in the company's interest to show that they work. Absolutely. Do we see it for health and weight loss? No, because it's not in their interest to say, hands up, what we're selling is yeah. shit for you. Like people aren't oh, going to do that. It's counterproductive. Yeah. Bit, yeah, exactly. It? <laughs> yeah, anyway, give some money. Um, it doesn't happen. But then when he said, "Oh, I have the diet versions," and he says, "Like, oh dear," because he has a no sugar version, it's just like, here we go. And then he talks about sweeteners and the effects on the gut and um how weight loss drinks don't work because you should save three hundred calories and you still didn't lose weight, so they don't work. As if, like, again, that's the only change that you make. It's just like I I haven't looked at the studies he he references, but I can imagine that they gave people sugary drinks versus um, non sugary drinks, and then check weight loss in people that weren't intentionally trying to lose weight, and then saw nothing. Absolutely. You think, well, yeah. So what for someone that's trying to create a deficit? Would this help them create a deficit? Of course it would. Yeah, but, and I find that um, again, we have to be aware that it's probably not ideal. Um, on a particular frequency for gut health, it's definitely ideal for your teeth. I found that out personally from my dentist, who's yep. quite a lot of money uh, over the last few years. But yeah, if you're trying to, you know, change a sweet tooth that was, I don't know, a piece of cake, a load of chocolate, and move someone, not removing those things, but saying, well, why don't you try a low calorie thing to create that deficit? It's a viable, mm-hmm. it's a viable way, absolutely. So I yeah. agree with you on that one. And I also think like. It's sort of this argument about diet drinks. It's as soon as you say they're not as bad as people think, everyone assumes that you're saying they're a health drink. And that's not the case. I'm not saying these are net positive for you. I'm Mm -hmm. saying they're probably not as far negative as you think. Do I think there's still potential that they are not good for our gut and that maybe we should consume them in moderation? And that person drinking three cans of Monster Zero and a bottle of Diet Coke a day it's saying they're fine. Do I think that's good? Probably not. Yeah. I don't think we've got loads of evidence. So like, I did a bit of... So I actually Googled some of these questions, and the Zoe website came up a couple of times, which is interesting. So the first thing I found was there was a review in 2019 which said, so far, only saccharin and sucralose and stevia changed the composition of the gut microbiota. So there's lots of studies in humans looking at different sweeteners showing no effect on the microbiota so for him to say categorically it changes the gut microbiome i don't think he can because there's plenty of evidence the other way yeah absolutely um from the zoe website itself some human studies haven't identified any effect of artificial sweeteners on gut bacteria one study in 34 individuals ran for seven days half of them got sucralose half got placebo there's no difference in glucose control insulin resistance or the gut microbiome which, I mean, you can argue seven days isn't very long. Would it take longer? There's lots of questions. I don't have any vested interest in this. I'm really interested in the results. But I'm not interested in people like him making very strong conclusions early on without the results. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's a case of, as well, how those studies will be done. You're not going to get long-term studies, you know, accounting for all the other variables. Mm. Like, let's be honest, most people who overconsume on diet drinks probably aren't going to be as health conscious. They probably aren't going to have as much fiber as sleep as well, etc. And that's the same argument with, with things like meat causes cancer, which we know is rubbish. They're, they're observational studies. They can't control them. And so I'm, I'm assuming quite confidently that that runs down a similar line. Mm-hmm. 
And then the one study which they did mention in the Zoe article that did show a difference with artificial sweeteners said, but it's complicated. So they followed seven people, which is a huge sample size. Oh, route, yeah. yeah, exactly. Who didn't usually consume artificial sweeteners for one week. So that's already different to a lot of people because we're saying you shouldn't have them even if you do. Mm-hmm. But this is only actually if you don't have them currently, should you start using them. Uh, for one week, um, they consumed the FDA's maximum acceptable daily saccharine intake. So not just like a little bit, it's as much as you possibly should be having. They found that four of the seven people had poorer blood sugar responses on days five to seven compared with days one to four. And then the authors called these responders, but the three people non-responders. And what they found is that the people that responded had different gut microbiomes to the ones that didn't. So it's almost like you said, like the people that already had quite a poor gut microbiome because of other lifestyle things tolerated it worse than the people that were okay. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it runs along the same line, doesn't it? You can't directly account for all those variables that we all live our lives so differently. Um, yeah. And it's important that, that you know, when studied, people should be aware of that, shouldn't they? What an observational study is mm. uh, and the massive pitfalls it has. Yeah. And he did quite, there was one point where he did quite a good job of explaining what he looks for when he's looking at studies. He, he says, oh, you can't just look at one study that Daily Mail published. You have to look at the sort of totality of the evidence. You have to look at all of the different factors. Um, he mentions cause and effect a couple of times during the podcast, which I don't think Stephen understood what that meant. Um, <laughs> and there was, but like he generally did quite a good job of explaining research, but there were times. And also the, the thing that upset me about the, the sweetness sort of conversation was towards the end of that part of the podcast, he said, we know very little about these products and they're not as bad as sugar, but. So I was like, you've all, you've contradicted yourself there because you've said, well, actually, this is what we know about it. But then you said, we don't know much about it. Oh, I drink them instead of the sugary ones. Oh dear. Oh, actually, they're not as bad as sugar. Like, which is it? Yeah, absolutely. He just like, yeah, flip-flops a lot between different things, doesn't he? Um, I guess one disappointing thing that he says is the sort of stuff around the microbiome and mood. Mm-hmm. And I think it's gonna be damaging for some people to hear him say we need to sort out the gut before we consider antidepressants. Like I know he used to be a physician as well, actually. But I just think like Everything else he said, you could argue, but it's not going to necessarily hurt people. Telling people that like fruit and veg is better than antidepressants has the potential to hurt people potentially. Yeah, I think you know the the natural evidence is so new. We know it's important. We know it has a massive role in our health, mental and physical. But what can we categorically kind of extrapolate from that and give people advice from is unknown. I think. I would definitely agree that alongside that by the GP looking at your fiber intake, it's not going to do any harm. I'm not saying it'll be the the magic bullet, Um, but so are other lifestyle factors looking at sleep, looking at exercise. They can all facilitate around the medication, but absolutely kind of clean slate trying to say have five or six bananas and don't have your medication is pretty dangerous territory. Especially because he goes on and says depression is multifactorial and there's genetics and there's other things like Say that first, and then so actually, this might be part of your treatment. But to compare the two, I don't think was necessarily morally the right thing to do because he knows he must know how people are going to interpret that, or some people. Yeah, but again, a big part of his app is based around gut health, isn't it? He's trying to drive everything he can, I guess, towards that argument um, to get people signed up. 
Yeah. So I guess if we end on his app then, because one thing that pissed me off about it was we don't talk about calories, it's taboo. Mm-hmm. Like to, to just not talk about something, which A, we obviously know is part at least part of the conversation, even if you don't want it to be front and centre. Mm-hmm. And B, to like have things that are off off the table, you can't talk about them. I don't think that's necessarily healthy in itself. I think to call, just the word taboo, to call yeah. it taboo. No, it's... yeah. We know it's it's the part that matters, but we know that we shouldn't just be talking solely about it. Mm. I think that's the best way of wording it. But what's interesting with me, I don't know that the history of the Zoe app, but I had a, a client on with me last week, Joe, and he actually downloaded it during COVID. And I feel from what he was saying, it started out as this like general COVID statistics about symptoms, and it's now merged uh, into this kind of sellable product around weight loss and health, which I thought he was, Joe himself was quite miffed off with that because he ended up deleting the app because it started from getting, collecting data on COVID to then start to market to him. So he just uh, That is interesting. So I know they've done a lot of research on COVID, um, which is obviously great because it's needed. But then if they're using that as a means of collecting lots of data to then market to people. Mm-hmm. Dangerous that's, territory. That's, yeah, unethical at best, isn't it? Absolutely. I had no idea that was the case. Um, like you said, I've not used it. Don't know that much about it. Um, I think he focuses a lot on fat peaks and sugar peaks, which aren't, again, for me, the biggest priority for someone. But you can't justify making them spend lots of money and giving them a glucose monitor and all those other tests if you don't talk about things like that. And I think, you know, that really just sums up what we keep saying about these different things. Like, nothing changes like how how would you now even with this give your advice around not just weight loss but leading a more balanced life it makes no difference and it's it's just another way of imposing unnecessary complexity and causing confusion in the general public and stress in the general public when this sounds like a really simple statement and clearly it's not but eating a predominant nutrient-dense diet however we define that most of the time in a way that fits in with your routine, assessing your barriers, assessing your values, that's what works, but it doesn't sell as a marketable product, does it? Mm. I think the key things that you've said there are unnecessary complexity. Because I'm quite controversially, because I'm quite interested in the sort of like cognitive performance side of things. And I don't think that something like continuous glucose monitor, I don't think that's the best use for it. I think everyone should have access to it with diabetes and things like that first. Do I think for an individual really focused on high performance in that area that data on how they use glucose and how they respond to it would or could be used to improve their cognitive performance? I actually probably think it could. I agree. Should it be marketed that you need to know this to improve your health and to generally be better? Absolutely fucking not. Like this is, I'm talking, if you are like CEO of, company worth millions and you've got the money to do this testing privately and pay for it all i think you could probably find something and again if we optimize everything else first we could look at that and actually use it but to take that and say actually for gen pop who we're marketing to for this 200 million company we should all be using that i just think that's not right it just it moves it makes people focus the lens mm. away from the priority and you know outside of upholding the principles of good nutrition and if someone needs that deficit of calories to get weight loss the biggest factor is adherence. And that is the, the thing that people lose, don't they? With all these things, how long is that person going to stick that thing on their arm? How long are they going to work through the app? 
you know, every day and go, oh, it's said I must have an apple instead of a banana. Yeah, they get annoyed. They end up back at the circle. Before you know it, they've got a full house in bingo of all the diets and like, what is going on? And and that, to me, is the frustration that adherence, sustainability, consistency, that's where the value is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And we have to say, for like the sake of nuance, which we spoke about all day, that will work better for some people because they like the shiny toys. They like the idea that I've got this little secret that they're telling me that no one else knows about. And that's why I'm doing really well. Some people will like that. But like you said, there will be a lot of people that are like, I can't stick to this anymore. There's too many moving parts to it. I just want to know what I need to do and when. But yeah. some people will really like the toys. I think, it, yeah, they'll like it. If in the short term it facilitates a transition of values yep. and identity, I don't fully write off name diets. But again, that like tracking calories, you know, there isn't a long, long term study. We have to look past. Yeah. The, these little different diets and, and try and get someone to look within at their identity and their, their routine. And and I think that's where empowering people with knowledge, proper evidence-based knowledge of keeping it as simple. You know, as coaches, we have a duty to not overcomplicate this. That's what diets do. I think that's where long-term success is. And he even says, like when Stephen says, what diet should I follow? He could just say, you should follow these principles, but he says, no, follow the gut friendly diet or the gut health diet or gives it a name and you're like people are immediately going to think i'm on this diet rather than i'm making these changes like the i don't think the labels ever help no you're absolutely right the the, the name should be the name of you as an individual that's what i say to everyone you know yeah. charlie's sam's diet or charlie's way of eating sam's way of eating yeah. like my food preferences my routine my calorie requirement not that i know it's perfectly but they're all individual. And that's what is also lost in translation, isn't it? That individual side. Yeah. I think like if you have, like if you're a coach, you can name a program because there are more than just the food itself as part of that. So like, oh, I have this program that does all these things. Great. Diet, there's this sort of implication that I have to follow these foods, not these foods. I have to do this rule, not this rule. And that's when I think it becomes a negative. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a middle ground, isn't there, that... We, if we're so vague, we don't help anyone. Yep. But if we're specific, we then also just cause a whole host of issues. So it's find that middle ground where you give an individual a framework that they can put the building blocks in a way that work for them. That's how I view my coaching. I'm guessing you're the same. You want to take people on a journey of giving the principles, helping them build that into their life, understanding their needs, wants, and beliefs, and then leaving them in a position where like, okay, I know that now and I can consistently apply that in my life. Yeah, hundred percent. It's just not sexy, is it? Doesn't sell. Nope. I've learned that, and I've learned that through. <laughs> I'd have to put some names on some stuff, and then uh, yeah. educate people when I've got them around the the actual principles. Yeah, I think that's a big part of our job. That's really difficult, actually. Is that sometimes you have to play the game mm-hmm. in order to get people in front of you where you know you can help them. So, like sometimes you have to talk about weight loss diets you have to talk about some of the terminology that other pe- that they use themselves to so like tone up, for example, and things like that. You have to do that. Um, and some people, are, I've been asked before, don't you feel like sleazy or salesy? And I think, well, no, because I know the help that I give them works. Mm-hmm. And if that's the game I've got to play in order to get someone in front of me and give them evidence-based, like good, ethical, moral help, then I'm willing to make that trade-off, I think. And that's exactly what my business coach worded it to me. Because I'm like you, I'm that passionate around my values that I, I want to be truthful and honest in this world full of crap. Yeah. He said, Look, meet people where they're at yeah. and then then align them when you've got them. And that you're right. I would rather pull people in with the terms yeah. weight loss and toning and then it, while they're with me, actually give them the full context on all those things. 
because at least they're not going to some other fad diet at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, that's how my brain processes it as well. Cool. I think we've covered a fair amount there um, with a few interruptions on the way for both of us. <laughs> um, I guess to conclude then, for me, he does a pretty good job. If you think about a lot of the people that would do this sort of podcast normally, he is evidence-based. Like if I was going to put someone in the mainstream in front of Stephen Bartlett, I'd probably still want it to be him. He does a good job most of the time. Some of the stuff he says about Zoe at the end, where he says principle, like pit changes that last for life, nothing's off the table, everything in moderation. Like he says all the right things. It was just, like I said at the start, it was muddled and clumsy for some mm. of it. I agree. Absolutely. Have you got any other thoughts on him or it? Uh, no, I, we both agreed, didn't we? The general premise of what he was saying was was right uh, and actually uh, he's probably more honest than a lot of people out there but in his position some of it he knew better and he was particular about what he said and what he didn't and it ended up sometimes catching him in the arse and he was backtracking but yeah I think it's just a reminder isn't it that we have to be so cautious even with very educated people that we can take what we know me and you will listen to that can take the bits we need from it that are valuable and ignore the others but it's that awareness that the general public don't have the knowledge we have. And I guess that's where correct education and correct context is so important. And to be fair, even us who are educated in this and him will interpret data in different ways. Like we can read the same evidence and maybe come up with different conclusions. So like science isn't about who's right or wrong or agreeing. It's about how you interpret evidence, which is why when people worry about science and say, well, actually, last week they said this, this week they say this. That's how science works. You change your mind, you get new evidence, you listen to how someone else interprets it and think, oh, maybe actually I've got that wrong. I used to think about it like this, but now they've said that and that makes sense as well. So we're not trying to all agree with each other. I don't think that's the point. I think we'll all carry our own bias. I think that... um, what I would say I've got wiser, the general principles of of, of nutrition uh, and, and health and how I coach haven't changed, but they've become softer, more broader, the context. I love the phrase that I know as long as I followed you use, but it depends. And I think that's the difference. When you have someone in front of you one-to-one, you can fill that gap. Mm-hmm. When you're when people are passing through your social media or passing through that podcast, you're not going to give them all that context. And that's where the potential danger is. Yeah, and that's why I sympathise with him. So just don't think with those questions, with that guy in front of you making the podcast how he wants it, I don't think you could come out of that unscathed. I think there's going to be things you say that are clumsy and it's impossible for you to get it all right and in a way that it'll work for everyone. Mm. And also I hate the idea of someone going back through one of my podcasts, for example, and checking everything I say. Like I didn't want that to be what this is because – if you speak for an hour on something, you're probably not going to be 100% accurate on it, particularly in a, what I imagine is quite a high-pressure environment, that podcast. And like we say, we don't know what was cut out and what was left in. At the end yeah. of the day, you know, that m- many people may find that this very balanced podcast isn't what they wanted because they wanted an extreme opinion. That's exactly what sells again, isn't it? So we don't know uh, what was taken out to make that more sexy and more controversial. And at the end of the day, like we said earlier, it did its job. Like, I've never come across a podcast that so many people have watched and so many people uh, listen and so many people are uh, having their own opinion on. Absolutely. And to be fair, what might happen from it, if you were to be very uh, optimistic, is that less people will track who shouldn't attract anyway and people will eat more plants when they should have eaten more plants anyway. 
So you'd hope that the, the general themes of the podcast got through to people. And I, I think generally, even though we've sort of slated a lot of it, he did a really good job for the most part. Yeah, I think if you look at it like that, and I think that plus the, the topic of exercise that we can generally agree on, that it shouldn't be primarily viewed as a weight loss tool, that it has lots of other benefits. I think that's a great realisation. You're absolutely right. The, the two there are uh, big issues. They just needed context. Yeah, 100%. Sam, thank you very much for your time. An absolute pleasure. First podcast guest that I've had, so that's been very nice. Ah, okay, awesome. Um, thank you for anyone that did listen, but it's probably a bit too balanced to get anyone listening to it, so it's probably just me <laughs> and you chatting about it. But um, yeah, thank you very much. I will chat to you later on, mate. Yeah, an absolute pleasure, mate. Speak to you soon. Bye.